You ask a powerful question in the book, writing, what would it look like if we worked for the benefit and flourishing of immigrants, whether or not they see the world as we do or agree with us in any way? What would it look like if we stopped forming political tribes of Christianity and evolve ourselves in politics solely to advance justice and affirm dignity? I don't know if you'll take us a little deeper there. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Gina Thomas. She's a former missionary in Mexico, authoring several books, including Separated by the Border and Smoldering Wick. She's an advocate for rights of immigrants and sustainable missions. And her sanctification has actually reached a new level as she now resides in the great state of North Carolina. Gina, <laughs> welcome to the conversation. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. All right, so we just read a little bit, uh, you know, about your credentials. But um, outside of your work and your writing, uh, what would you want people to know about you? Oh, let's see. Um, well, I have two kids. Um, one is eleven, and one is seven, um, and they are wonderful. Um, and I've been married to my husband for uh, almost, I think, thirteen years, maybe fourteen. I'm not quite sure. I get, I forget quite a bit. Um, and yeah, I just, uh, love traveling, love playing soccer when I can, uh, recently coached my daughter's soccer team, which was an interesting endeavor. <laughs> um, and yeah, just, uh, just enjoy learning more about other people and kind of bridging, bridging culture, cultures and, and understanding kind of what makes people tick. So. And uh, you served on, on the mission field in, in Mexico. Tell us about uh, the experience there and, and the type of work you did. I know, you know, probably audience didn't know you opened up a coffee shop and um, all kinds of fascinating things. Yeah. So um, my husband and I, we were there for about four and a half years. Um, actually, our son was born there. Um, we initially went down to uh, serve as teachers, uh, English teachers. And so we did that for the first year that we were there, but kind of felt like maybe there was something more we could be doing. Um, my husband um, was, was a climber or is a climber. 
um, and they're not too far from where we were living and working, um, actually about like 10 minutes away was, or is um, Potrero Chico, which is an international uh, hotspot for rock climbing. And so um, we were there quite a bit and kind of realized that there was not a lot of interaction between the international climbers and, um, and the nationals. And so um, one of the things that, you know, as we were teaching middle school English and my husband was teaching PE, um, you know, we, we wanted to kind of get these kids up on the mountain. And so we, we did some different excursions where we would um, either help with kind of youth group stuff or, or take kids that, that wanted to come with us to go climbing. Um, and then, you know, as I said, just, just really saw that that was, that was kind of a bigger issue beyond just our students, that there were a lot of people we knew kind of through the, the church community that had never gone climbing, even though they knew that that was like a really popular spot and a lot of international people came there. So uh, one of the things we decided to do was to open a coffee shop um, that served um, not only as, as that bridge between the two cultures, but also uh, as a way to, to um, kind of fund um, a middle school opening up. So the church that we were part of, um, a local church there in, in El Carmen, um, they had plans to open up a middle school in another area that wasn't too far from there either, um, where there was no middle school. And so that was certainly something that, that we wanted to jump on board with. And um, what ended up happening was uh, some of the funding, certainly not all of it, but some of the funding that uh, we were able to get through the coffee shop was able to help uh, support the school being built. It took a long time for that school to be built. Um, in fact, we never got to see it you know, with our own eyes while we were there, but um, it was a lot of a lot of different kind of uh, situations that um, came up as obstacles for that to happen. But um, we were able to to have some work days where the climbers, um, when they were on their rest days, which they had to take even more rest days after this, would come and kind of help us break ground on the school. Um, so we just had some really wonderful, interesting kind of cultural moments where, you know, we have, <laughs> I remember one time in particular where uh, the pastor was was with us at the, um, at the construction site for the new school. And we had a group of climbers who had come and we were like, okay, now we got to break, break this, this ground. And the, the, one of the climbers was like, okay, well, where's the jackhammers at? We don't see any. And, um, and the pastor looked at, at this climber's very large arm muscles and he was like, they're right there. <laughs> and so, um, it was just really neat to, to see how that happened. And even after we left, um, the, the coffee shop is still going on today. It's called El Buo Mexico. Um, it's in, um, Hidalgo and, uh, you can, you can find it on, I think Instagram and maybe a couple of other social medias, but there's still connections where climbers are cleaning up the area, um, helping with different school projects. Um, there's still quite a large connection between that school um, and, and the coffee shop. And so it's just really neat to see how much that has blossomed even after we left. Um, and it's interesting because the, the climbing world is, is relatively small um, in this area. And so North Carolina, we also lived in Tennessee for a while. So um, we randomly have been on hikes, my husband and I, and we'll see somebody who has uh, an owl. That's what the the, the coffee shop El Bull is, is owl. Um, they'll have an owl shirt on or we'll see a, a random owl sticker in a parking lot of the state park. And um, it's just really funny to, 
to kind of see that um, connection kind of go way beyond what we ever thought it could. So, um, yeah. You know, many aspects of sustainability of collaborating together with people, um, you know, obviously it gives you a sense of, of pride in the work you do, but also gives you a sense of like um, the way that you approached it, right? That this wasn't about something that had to be centric around you and in order yeah. for it to survive, um, yeah. which really kind of, you know, leads us into your first book, um, 2016, you published A Smoldering Wick in which you invite readers to re-examine the many challenges that come with our understanding of missions and charity. Um, mm -hmm. You wrote, my goal is not that everyone does mission work the same way. My desire is to see strong, authentic relationships built through STMs between sending and receiving churches, the kind that have a sincerely carrying each other's burdens, the kind that show us a world uh, shows the world a unity to covet. Um, you wrote the book coming off the heels of your four-year mission experience on the field. Um, what were you processing at the time that that motivated you to write this? Yeah, so I was um, I had uh, started grad school through Eastern University while we were still in Mexico, and part of part of the reason for doing that was kind of um, you know what I was talking about with this project and the coffee shop um, and just really being face to face with uh, where, where that middle school was uh, was built um, is, is a pretty impoverished area. And so my husband and I, we, we served as youth pastors there for a little while, not necessarily because we wanted to, but they, they really wanted us to the, the leaders, the pastors there. Um, and it was it was just very eye opening for us to um, to really come face to face with just injustice and, and economic concerns and issues and obviously all the different things that that affects um, to and, and to just feel helpless to feel like I don't know how to approach any of this. Um, and so because of that, uh, I, I signed up to to do some some grad school work um, in international development and really wanted it to have a faith perspective. And so I got very lucky and had an amazing cohort of, um, of other uh, kind of faith leaders around the world doing, doing similar work and just got to learn so much from, from all of them. And of course, from my professors as well. Um, but there were a lot of things that, you know, learning in that through that program that really challenged my paradigm um, of charity and um, just really started questioning what, what charity is and, kind of why we focus so much on it instead of instead of really um, kind of doing a deeper dive into what justice is and who God is as a God of justice throughout the Bible. And so that really changed a lot of my thinking. And obviously I was living, you know, as a missionary at the time. And so um, I was still teaching some at the school. Um, we were we were still doing some youth pastor work and then we were still doing the coffee shop. And so Kind of all of those different experiences came together and um just felt like what i was learning was something that i think if if more people knew and understood kind of a theology of poverty um that maybe some of these you know harmful short-term missions practices that are very typical and kind of applauded in a lot of ways in the us um could change and so that's really what i was trying to process as we as we returned back to the States and um, it, the book actually came out of um, a, a paper that I did for, for grad school on um, 
participatory development and really trying to understand how can how can this language um, and these learnings be gleaned from you know people who aren't in grad school and people who are just going on missions trips and so that's really how that book was birthed. There, there's a fascinating chapter in which you you ask readers to consider the difference between learned compassion and reactionary compassion. Can you take us a little deeper there? Yeah, I think in that um, chapter, I, I give the example of um, Sandy Hook and um, the tragedy that happened um, when I believe it was 22 students were, were killed were murdered um, during that time. And there was a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of um, interest throughout the whole nation to respond. Um, but their the response was um, often reactionary. And so I think this this kind of goes back to this idea of charity versus justice and, and the concept that, you know, when, when in the example, a bunch of people sent stuffed animals to the school. And so they had like, I think it was like a storehouse full of stuffed animals that they had received from just people wanting to do something right there's this like you see this this injustice that happens and you want to react um and uh, at one point there was a spokeswoman that had said like please stop sending us stuffed animals like we can't you're actually making it worse for us because now we have to deal with all these stuffed animals instead of dealing with what has what has happened um and so i think it's really just um Kind of taking a step back when we when we see something happen or we know if something happened or something happens to us and um or to someone that we love and really just stepping back for a second instead of just reacting um with whatever we feel right whatever emotion we're feeling in the moment um to to stop and process like what what is the injustice here and what is a way in which we can kind of hit um to the heart of that injustice rather than you know just wanting to feel better ourselves, because that's, I think that's really the, um, the, the challenge for, um, you know, what, what seems to be what I would call charity is that the, the wonderful thing about charity is that it helps us feel better. Like we feel better about our place in the world, um, when we are able to reactionarily, um, respond to something that that's happened. And so, um, unfortunately, that often can do harm. It doesn't always, but it can do harm. And so, you know, when when you go on mission trips and you um, you're, you're painting houses, let's say, um, because you know somebody's never had a house painted, and so that you feel like that's that's a way that you can share love. Well, um, you know, let's take a step back for a minute and kind of try to understand the whole picture, right? Um, did uh, is the neighbor who maybe doesn't go to church going to see that this group comes down and then feel jealous of the fact that this that their neighbor has their house painted right so there's all these different aspects of of the work that we do the actions that we take that I think we need to to consider before deciding this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to show God's love right and that's usually what we call it we're like this is God's love and we're just showing it God's love and then and then we often say like well you know, whatever that person does with this is up to them, right? And then we're just like, just like clean our hands from this. And, um, and, and that's not actually justice. That's, uh, in, in fact, sometimes that's just selfish. Um, and so that's kind of my hope with that is that people will start to think through some of those things and, and really examine why we do the things we do. And if, 
you know, thinking through if God is a God of justice, what kind of love does that, does justice show in those moments? Where does privilege come into the conversation um, on our concept and participation and missions, uh, more yeah. specifically as, as white American Christians? Yeah, it's huge. And I think uh, maybe that's one of the um, weaknesses of the book is that I didn't talk about that enough. Um, and I think I didn't quite have the language for it then as I do now. Um, but I, I certainly say some things around it, but, um, but I, I think, you know, that that's a huge part of it. Right. And the, the, uh, self-examination that is necessary before kind of stepping into these conversations, um, is, is pretty huge. And thankfully I was able to see a, a couple of churches do some really good missions work. And I think the reason that they were so good was because, they came um, previously or had conversations, um, and and we were we were privy to several of these conversations simply because we were, you know, missionaries living long term there, and so the pastor really trusted us, and we were able to have some of these conversations with him. But um, um, the the churches that did missions well and partnered well with the local church that we were a part of um, were ones that came with the humility to say, hey, we don't know what's best for your community. Um, we don't know the best way to serve you. What what are the things that you are doing and how can we join in those efforts? Um, and I think the, the biggest challenge with privilege is that um, it often blinds us to the arrogance that comes along with, with it, right? And so we'll say things, and I think I talk about this in the book, we'll say things like, well, I'm educated, right? I have a master's degree, like, I speak two languages, I like all these things right in my head of my resume, my own resume that puts me on a pedestal above somebody else. And so when I come and approach Pastor David or whoever, um, I might think, well, I know all of this learned knowledge and I should be able to tell you what you need to do and what needs to happen in this moment. Um, and, and it's easy when we live in a society where um, those types of things, right? All the different levels of privilege, like economics and education, and um, certainly our our race, um, kind of point us to a world that we live in where those things are valued more. And so, a lot of times, we don't even recognize the ways in which we have arrogance surrounding those things. Um, and so, for those who are um, you know, especially white Christians coming down to obviously a Mexican context, because that was the one that I knew. Um, the when there was a lack of that awareness, it was clear. It was very clear up front. And it was like, okay, this is what this person wants to do. And then they want to go back to their church and say, this is what we did, right? Instead of it being like, this is actually something that our church needs and and wants and could really use. And so if we're not um if we're not assessing um, and examining our own privileges on a regular basis, I feel like at this point in time, I can confidently say we have no business doing missions work. What about America today? It, it, it represents a, a movement away from the institutional church um, in which fewer people today identify as Christian, though spirituality is at an all-time high. 
Uh, at the same time, there seems to be a, a greater awareness of social, gender, and, and racial inequities. Um, we're now in a, a post-colonial model of missions, recognizing that while we were concentrating on sending white people abroad, the very country we live in is full of ways to seek justice and to live compassionately and caring for our neighbors. Um, at least in our movement of churches, I'm seeing a tremendous shift away from traditional missions meaning the concept that we've developed around missions in the last 200 plus years and a shift towards advocacy and immigration reform and racial reconciliation and more. Is this, you know, is this the the new way of doing missions? Is this a more authentic way? Or is this just a way that we're responding to the needs of the time? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that I know the answer on that um i do think that as we kind of pull out of doing some of these missions um you know we we have to be very careful because uh, unfortunately we've created we've created a lot of dependency on some of this um and so it's also possible that we do harm in the way that we kind of stop doing it um and that's not to say that I want dependency to continue. It's just that, um, you know, we <laughs> we kind of can go and mess things up and then pull out and mess things up even worse. And so um, I do, I am actually very happy generally overall to see that more, um, more Christians are A, aware of privileges, B, um, doing justice work in their own backyards. I think that's really, really important. I think, um, you know, one thing that I talk about in the book is just this idea that, you know, we, we kind of, um, exotic, exoticify, if that could be a word, um, the missions. And so, you know, things that we'll do on a missions trip, we would never do, you know, at home, we would never go to our neighbors and be like, Hey, do you want us to paint your house? Um, and so, you know, the absurdity of that um, is laughable at times, but the reality of it is that um, I think it really shows the difference between what is charity and what is justice. And um, because you really can't have um, justice without some type of relationship, um, I think, or or some level of valuing the other human being at the same at the same level that you value yourself or your own home or, you know, I wouldn't want my neighbor to come over and paint my house if I'm being honest. Um, and so I'm happy to see that, you know, we're, we're starting to really see a lot of issues on the forefront, of course, social media and the internet at our fingertips helps us to understand more than, you know, 20 years ago, what was happening right around us. Um, the issues that are, that are facing, that our neighbors are facing, right? Um, but at the same time, like, I think it, it can be easy for us to just kind of turn, um, turn those acts of charity that were initially kind of, you know, being exported, um, to just kind of allow those same acts of charity to happen here. And so what, what I mean by that is that, you know, if we, if we decide as a church that we're going to do this one thing, um, but this one thing, um, you know, maybe it's a one-time thing. It's kind of like a, um, let's just, let's just do this once and then we'll be done. 
um, that's not actually justice either. And so, you know, if we're going to get involved in immigration rights, like let's really get involved in immigration rights, not just this this one moment or this one time because something happened on the news. Um, and so I guess my hope is that whether it's, you know, done internationally or done, you know, not far from where we live, that the work that we do, um, the way that we engage in our communities um, is, is something that is sustainable, that is, um, you know, done through deep relationships that we build with with those that we are coming alongside with. Um, and I think really it's it's because the reason I say that is because justice is always mutual. And so in the same way that, um, you know, we're let, like, let's say we're, we're going to do this one immigration advocacy march, right? And then we decide, oh, this is us, like we're, this is what we do. Well, maybe at that march, we start to see things about ourselves that are not, not so good, right? Maybe we, we catch ourselves thinking something that's not right, that's not of God. Um, or we start saying in our minds, like, they always do this. I wish they wouldn't do this, right? And so there's those moments of examination that um, that this work allows for us to have opportunities to really see and examine our own hearts and our own minds and our own privileges and our own biases. Um, and if, you know, if we only do things one time and then we're done, um, it, it doesn't really give us the space to, to really um, change those behaviors. Um, it might bring some awareness to it, but it doesn't always give us the room to change it. Now, when we're living in community with, with someone like our pastor, pastor David in Mexico, um, you know, he'll bring something to our attention and be like, why did you do this? You know, this is not okay. Um, and so I think just in general, um, whatever work we are doing, whether it's, you know, as a, as an institutionalized church or as a community of believers, um, we have to try, uh, I think, to to make it work that, A, the community needs or is asking for, um, that brings us into relationship with the community and community leaders, and so they can hold us accountable to the work that we're doing. Um, and then also, you know, work that that we, we are constantly reminding ourselves, this is mutual work, and we are growing in the process. We are becoming better Christians in the process. It's not just we're giving to these people and they should be grateful. Um. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's change gears a little bit and shift into an area that you you brought up, um, which is around immigration, um, which you know comes out of your next book, Separated by the Border. This book is about your journey as a foster parent, helping your foster child reunite with their family. And before we get to the story, tell us about your sense of calling to foster children. Yeah, um, 
so I, I think this really started um my my mom is, is what we would call kinship adoption at this point uh in in these kinds of terms it's not terminology that she had or or my family had um when when the situation happened but her mom died when she was very young and so she was raised by her aunt essentially um and and that aunt basically became my grandma um or was my grandma um and so i i think um some of this like calling was was there just because of that experience and my mom had often talked about adoption and um fostering when when we were when we were growing up and so all of that kind of um led to a couple of different situations in my own life and um i for the longest time uh wanted to adopt only wanted to adopt and didn't want to have kids biologically um and and then when my husband and i met um we kind of made a decision that we would that we would try to have we would try to do both um so when we were in Mexico, we were, um, after my son was born, we started looking into adoption and realized that it, the, that the laws in Mexico make it very difficult for, um, someone who's not Mexican to, to adopt. They actually even make it difficult for Mexicans to adopt. Um, and I think a lot of that is really, um, certainly with the non-Mexicans to adopt is, is actually very good. Um, now I wouldn't, I don't know that I would have said that at the time. It was very frustrating at the time. Um, but as I started studying for grad school, realizing, you know, again, examining some of these typical behaviors, like why, why am I so interested in going to help an orphanage, um, in another country, but I'm not at all concerned about um, those who have no parents or her living, you know, in foster care in my own country. And so a lot of those questions really started nagging at me. And, um, and when um, kind of door after door was closed in Mexico, I started to see it more as, um, as a good thing rather than a, a frustration. Um, and then when we moved back to the States, we started talking about um, foster care and, and adopting um, and so it wasn't too, too long after we got back that we signed up for foster care classes and those take a long time. So it was like a 10 week class that we took. And then, um, and then my daughter actually was born not too long after that, which was a surprise to us. But, um, and so we just kind of had to postpone it for a while. And then when she was about two and a half, I think we, um, we were placed with, with the first placement that we had. And so um, again, I think a lot of that calling was just based around this paradigm shift that um, changed in my mind about, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I've gone on several different missions trips as as a kid growing up in youth group, um, and even as as a college student, and you know, I love missions trips, but what am I doing here, right? Like, what, it, how is that integrated into my life here in the states? Um, and so the the desire to get involved with foster care really stemmed from initially desiring adoption and then trying to really understand what the foster care system is and why it exists. And then just this this idea of reunification and how, you know, adoption often, it's not always this way, but adoption often only looks at the child. And um, and I think that 
that mindset really needs to be challenged because every child is born um, to a mom and a dad, uh, whether or not, you know, they are alive or in the picture or whatever, there's always at least three people involved in that scenario. And so um, I think as we, as I think more about the gospel and wholeness and what it means to be, um, you know, saved and, and whole, um, I couldn't get out of this, couldn't get this idea out of my mind that um, whether it's foster care or adoption, you have to, you have to think about the whole family and is this justice for the whole family? Um, I mean, we all know stories of adoption that um, is not justice, right? For the whole family. In fact, there's, there's several different aspects of that. There are some where they were adopted and the parents didn't know, or they thought they were sending them to boarding school in another country or ones in which, um, you know, the, the child is, is adopted to white parents, but the child is not white. And so feels like they completely lose their identity um, in growing up with, with white parents. And so there's just a lot of different arenas in which um, justice is, is um, just kind of put to the side um, throughout this. And so foster care really um, kind of tugged at me in that way of like being a family that can support another family getting on its feet seems like um, more in line with what God intends um, for the world than kind of, um, you know, not thinking about the other family at all. Um, and I don't mean to say that every adoptive family does that. I just, I think that's where I was at the time. I was only thinking about the child when I was thinking about adoption. And now I think about the child and the parents. Um, yeah. Tell us about Julia. Yeah. So um, we were um, we were both speaking Spanish. Obviously, we had lived in Mexico for a while, and so um, we, when we signed up for foster care, um, our social worker knew that we both spoke Spanish, and uh, we had at the time had. Um, been placed initially we were placed with two girls and then um, one of those girls went to live with another family and then um, we got a call one day saying hey there's a girl who um, is only speaking Spanish can you come and just take her for the weekend and we think that you know ICE um, Immigration Customs Enforcement will, will get her on Monday um, but we need somewhere for her to stay and nobody in the office can actually even understand what she's saying or why she's here. So, um, so when I, when, you know, I arrived at the, at the social services office to kind of meet her and talk to her and hear more about her story, um, we just kind of thought that she obviously was, was just going to stay for the weekend. And then on Monday, we're going to go to court and she was going to be taken away into the customs, um, and enforcement or to ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement. So both of those offices were supposed to arrive in court that next Monday, um, but neither one did. And so it was postponed for another week. We showed up again thinking that um, she would go with them again. And um, and that didn't happen. And so when, the, when they did not arrive um, that second court date, it, she kind of moved into foster care um, custody and so at that point in time, we had to determine what, what we were going to do. Um, she was five at the time. Um, we weren't 100% sure how old she was. We thought four or five, but we weren't sure. And um, 
she, we, we were really confused about what happened to her mom when she first came into our home. But after kind of moving through some different scenarios and figuring out some situations, um, we were able to, to find that her mom was still alive, that they were separated at the border, um, and that her mom had returned to Honduras. And when I first found out, um, when I first met her mom, like through a phone conversation, um, I had no idea that she had been through everything she had been through on the way, on the journey to the border. Um, and so we, we weren't quite sure how they were separated, um, but um, knew, and obviously the social workers were certainly very much involved in this, but knew that, that they needed to be reunited. Um, the, the way that foster care works is that, um, there, there needs to be a judge in the county that signs off on uh, a home study and kind of making sure that the, the parent is, uh, capable and, you know, not going to neglect the child, not going to abuse the child, all that kind of stuff. And so we had to go through these several different processes of, um, kind of getting that information to a judge here in, in, uh, North Carolina. Um, and so that took, a long time and it took a lot of um, advocacy and a lot of kind of um, translating for different people who didn't because not all the social workers here I mean we we do live in a county where there are a lot of um, Spanish speakers but not at the time there weren't any social workers that spoke Spanish so I kind of ended up being a translator between the embassy and um, you know different different aspects of this um, the aunt the the mom, like all the different people that needed, if anybody needed Spanish, um, the translator that they had uh, for the county was kind of overworked. And so I ended up being that person. Um, and so, so she, when she came to us, um, you know, we, we kept talking about how she was going to be reunited with her mom once we figured that, that that was actually going to be the case. Um, but there were, uh, there were a lot of Kind of hiccups along the way and at one point in time she was pretty ready to just give up and say uh, i'm just gonna live here and she decided that she wanted to stop speaking spanish she decided that she wanted to stop eating um, honduran food and i think she had said something like i don't want i don't like avocados and tortilla anymore and um so it's just interesting kind of throughout the process to to see you know, that, that hope deferred, right? Like, um, this was, this was a, a mother and daughter that should have been reunited immediately. And of course there are policies and systems for play in, in place for a reason, but, um, for them, by the time she came into our home, I think it was, that was in February and we re were able to reunite them in July. Um, so she was, she was with us for a while. She had been separated from her mom for eight months. And, um, you know, you hear about a lot of the stories of kids that were separated at the border um, because of the zero tolerance policy. Um, she had actually entered um, the U.S. with her stepdad, but because of the zero tolerance was separated from him. Um, but thankfully, they were able to reunite. Um, sometimes it feels kind of crazy to say that they were lucky um, and then they were and that they were able to reunite um, just because luck is kind of a construct. And again, when, we, when we're talking about privilege, um, you know, in my white privilege, it's easier for me to say that that's lucky, but it's, it's not lucky. Like they should have been together, you know, immediately. And so, um, yeah.
So it was, we were very, very happy that we got to travel with her. My husband, Andrew and I, we got to travel with her to, um, to Honduras and meet her mom. Um, and, you know, since then we've been, we've been friends, uh, as we, we talk all the time. Julia's story is, is a startling example of the immigration experience of those coming to the U S border. Uh, talk to us about the realities of what people are facing at the border today. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of, uh, rules and laws that, that change kind of regularly. And so, um, I was working in immigration for about a year and got to see some of the behind the scenes of, of just the, the legal challenges, um, for people who are coming to the U S uh, you know, a lot of people say, just tell them to get in line. They should get in line like everybody else. And, um, that's not really, I mean, that's, that's a myth. Like there is no line. And so, and some people have been doing this legally and, um, that line is 25 years long. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a really challenging, um, system and it in some ways makes, you know, the, the U S government makes it harder for people to enter than it should. Um, and in some ways, you know, there are there are just situations in which, um, you know, out of utter, you know, just lack of of, of economics, lack of opportunity, um, really causes people to to come to the U.S. So there's there's a ton of push and pull factors that is what economics call it um, for for people trying to come, and and that really was. Julia's situation. It was her mom's situation. They were, they were coming because, um, their grandfather was sick. And so, um, in order to pay for the money for, um, his medicine, uh, they, Lupe, the Julia's mom needed, needed a better job and, um, and thought she could come to the States for a couple of months, get the money that she needed and go back home. And so I think a lot of people, um, a lot of Americans don't quite realize um, or or maybe don't empathize enough to say, hey, nobody actually really wants to leave their home. Um, it's it's because of some kind of dire situation that would make them do that. And so um, I think if, if we can just start there, um, especially as Christians, if we could start there with our empathy for immigrants, I think I think that would change a lot. Um, it's easy to, um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard pastors say horrible things about immigrants from the pulpit. And it just, um, makes me really sad that we can't have the empathy, um, that, that I'm, uh, I know without a doubt that Christ has for us, right. For everyone, like, um, uh, we mimic Christ when we have empathy for others. And so I, I just, I wish we could start there because there's a lot of situations in which, immigration is complicated. There are not enough um, practitioners or lawyers to handle the demand of what's happening. There's um, there's not enough people at the DOJ specifically uh, for, for the um, immigration aspect of things to really process paperwork that goes through. So um, EOIR, I can't remember what that stands for, but it's one of the agencies in the U.S. that, that does that processing. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is backlogged. And so um, you know, this is not just an easy 
you know, black and white situation in which people are, are coming here illegally and they know it and they shouldn't do it. And it's, and it's wrong. Like that's not the answer. That's not what's happening. And um, there are a lot of, a lot of wonderful books, a lot of Christian authors actually that kind of talk through some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think if we could just start with some empathy on, on the idea that like, not, we don't want to leave our homes, right? When we do, when we move, it's usually a choice. It's uh, often an economic choice that um that makes us move from one place to another and um you know and certainly in, in julia's situation that was not the intent at all to move it was just to to get the money that they needed and and go back home because home is home um wherever you are wherever you come from home is home and to have to leave it um due to violence or um neglect or you know abuse or lack of opportunity to to make a better life, um, it's not easy. It's not easy to leave home. And I think that's another thing that foster care teaches us too, right? Is that, um, you know, children uh, who grow up, the best thing for children to do always is to grow up with their biological parents. Um, but that's not always possible. And, and when that cycle breaks, um, it's a really, really hard and complicated and deeply psychological um, challenge for, for people to to kind of move past. And I think the same is same as for immigration. It's, it's not, not coming here because it's, you know, a wonderful life by any means. And a lot of immigrants know that when they come here, they will be discriminated against and they, their lives may be threatened and they may work in areas where um, their boss says that if they don't, you know, if they don't work 17 hours today, then they will threaten them with ice. So, um, you know, it's not, it's not just this easy, easy peasy thing that uh, I think a lot of people often wrongly assume that it that it is. It's tricky to paint up with broad brushes. However, um, in the last several decades, republicanism has become synonymous with white evangelicalism. Um, this religious and political movement has been seen more often than not as the ones proposing. Uh, the harshest border policies. Is that a fair assessment? And if so, can you give us a snapshot as to how these policies turn into inhumane treatment to asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants? Yeah, I think um, I think generally speaking, it's relatively fair to say there are definitely some Republicans um, who are fighting for immigrant rights. Um, so I don't want to um, don't want to exclude them because, um, again, with, with the work that I was able to do in, in immigration, got to learn more about um, uh, some of them. Um, but generally speaking, I would, it, it seems that way. And, and, and maybe that's why uh, Separated by the Borders is such a challenging book because it's written to white evangelicals. Um, at the time when I was writing it, I considered myself an evangelical. I, I don't know that I do anymore, um, but um, it's definitely, um, it, it's surprising. It, it's really surprising um, because when we think about what it means to be evangelical and what the word, you know, evangelical is about good news, right? Good news. Um, and I think about Luke 4 and about um, when Jesus says that he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, it just, there's just this, 
disconnect um, that's so strong. And sadly, um, that that disconnect is not seen, I think, in a lot of white evangelicals, especially in, in the ways that they vote. Um, I mean, I, I have had some very heated conversations with uh, the family member of mine who, who knows Julia, who, um, you know, hung out with her and still sees um, immigration policies and, and still kind of sees the Republican Party as the way to go, as the like godly way to, to kind of move forward in, in this nation. Um, unfortunately, I think there's, there's just a lot of, I mean, you can read any of the books that have come out recently, Jesus and John Wayne and, you know, the, the, uh, Beth, uh, Allison Barr, I can't remember her name, um, the name of her book, but yeah, there's just, there's a lot that, um, kind of corresponds with, with how, um, deeply intertwined, uh, Republicanism and, um, you know, what evangelicalism has, has been. And kind of unbraiding those cords is is challenging. And I think, you know, we were talking earlier about how a lot of Americans aren't necessarily going to church anymore. Um, and certainly this is part of it, right? Because once you start to un, unbraid what has been braided for so long, you start to wonder, where do I fit anymore? And I think that perfectly describes me. Um, where do I fit? Because um, I don't agree with a lot of these policies and and kind of ways of being that um, those who I've been in deep spiritual community have believed for a long time and haven't really had issues with. Um, and some of that was kind of like, just not on my radar before. Um, or some of it was like, oh, that's kind of in general what white evangelicals believe, but the people that I'm in community with don't necessarily believe that. And then when, um, 2016 election happened, I, I saw some things I'd never seen before in, you know, in my fellow congregants and was just kind of blown away by the perceptions and the, um, what, what I would consider kind of brainwashing that has happened over the years of, of mixing these, um, by evangelicalism and republicanism and in fact had, um, a couple of Republicans like get on stage at the church that we were a part of. And it's just, um, it was very surprising to me that that was okay. You know, that was okay. And, and, and not just okay with, with my church, but okay with a lot of churches in the nation um, where there's just this mixing and it, it almost feels like it's the same. Um, and so, you know, that, which easily leads to this like nationalism that we're seeing um, and kind of hard to, to break through the, the pinpoints of where those, where those connections um, kind of lost a lot of people along the way. Um, so yeah, so when I when I read Jesus and John Wayne, I was like, oh, okay. A lot of this stuff makes sense and it's been going for a long time, um, you know, far beyond out of my control or, or my community's control necessarily. And so um, it's not, all that surprising, uh, not just with immigration, but you know, with racial reconciliation, with um, with with poverty, with a lot of different areas and aspects of life where um, white evangelicals are saying one thing um, that seems completely antithetical to the gospel. Um, 
Yeah. And I, you had asked a question and I didn't even answer it because I went off, but what was, what was the, the question again? <laughs> you Sorry. answered it perfectly. And okay. yeah, I, I mean, again, I said it's, it's tricky painting with broad brushes and, and, and I mean, in our, in our divisive world, it's, it's hard. We, we want to draw a line in the sand, but the reality yeah. is that we've been forced into these political ideologies, even as followers of Jesus in which we, right. we almost have to kind of, you know, pick um so yeah. it is it is complicated you you ask a powerful question in the book um writing what would it look like if we worked for the benefit and flourishing of immigrants whether or not they see the world as we do or agree with us in any way what would it look like if we stopped forming political tribes of christianity and evolve ourselves in politics solely to advance justice and affirm dignity i don't know if you'll take us a little deeper there yeah, um, you, you threw that question before I could ask you the question because I feel like uh, I feel like you've probably had some of your own experiences with with this whole white evangelical, um, you know, realm of republicanism that I would love to hear um, if you if you'd like to jump in and share. Um, but in regards to in regards to this idea of being political for the sake of of flourishing. Um, I mean, yeah, it's ideal, right? Like that's that's an idealistic thing. And I think a lot of people can can read that question and just think, well, that's not possible, um, practically speaking. Um, but but what if it is, right? Like what if what if we just try? What if we um, you know, instead of instead of deciding we're gonna vote all one way, whether it's Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or whatever, um, we actually decide like let's look at the issues. Let's look at how this person is, is, it, it has handled these things in the past and, and what they're going to do, you know, with it. I mean, I'm not going to lie, even, um, who was it recently, uh, who won in Georgia? Um, he was a, a democratic Senator and he won in War, Georgia. I, uh, Raphael Warnock. Yes. Yes. So I was really happy to see that he won, um, to be very honest, but then I also saw that he had, uh, he had tweeted something about, um, you know, all glory to God on this. And, and I just thought, man, that's, that's his own intertwining of, uh, of this idea that, that God, um, I don't know that the divine intervention happens in our politics. And I don't believe that, that God is completely a part of politics by any means, but I also think that we have to be really careful when we assume that God is a certain way or for a certain political party, like it, we that can go very dangerously. I mean, obviously it has with Christian nationalism. Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, I just, I like people are really suffering. There, there are real issues that are affecting people in ways that um, we may never know. And uh, again, going back to foster care, this really taught me that like, um, there are people right around the corner from my house who are in deep depression, who are, you know, suffering deeply uh, as either as kids or as parents trying to make it. And, and, and we might never know. Um, and I think that if we start to see politics more as a way to um you know fight and advocate for the flourishing of every human being 
regardless of who that who that human being is, regardless of whether or not they agree with our religious stance or our um, political stance or what, but we actually want to see their flourishing. Um, I think that that um, it can be voting can be more of a, of like a sanctification process than it can be like a hey this is my identity um because you know identity and violence they they can they can go hand in hand um and, and it, it's easy to assume um that you are better than others when you have such a tight locked identity um under a certain group and um and i think that that can really hinder the flourishing um of others. And I think, you know, for us as Christians, one thing that I see all the time is that we, we have put our beliefs up on such a high pedestal that we look down on other people who don't hold those same beliefs. And obviously, as I was talking about before and, and kind of untwining, right, the republicanism that was even in me growing up, um, you see that, like I now see from other other Christians that I'm looked down upon because I don't agree to the same uh, theology or worldview that that maybe they do or even that I had but in the past. Um, but shouldn't I still be worth fighting for? Like, shouldn't my my rights as a human being and my um, you know my dignity as a human being still be fought for? I feel like this is what the Imago Day is in all of us is that we are all authentically human and and divinely imprinted and therefore um regardless of anything else um we need to affirm the the humanity uh and the dignity that comes with that humanity um in every person around us and um unfortunately i think a lot of politics just kind of is the opposite you've got a um, a new book uh, you're working on uh, about God's great abundance. Uh, what would you want us to know about it? Well, <laughs> um, it's it's a work in progress. Um, struggling to struggling throughout the process to to make it happen. To be very honest, uh, writing is um, always a difficult endeavor. Uh, publishing your writing, and I think with 2020 um covid and kind of all that happened with that it's it's a lot of um it's a lot of like do you have a platform um i mean i think that was certainly the case before 2020 don't get me wrong but i think it's uh, become even more of a giant issue with writers right now is that a lot of places aren't willing to publish because if you don't have a, a rather large platform you're not going to sell books and so i say all that to say that this is a process um, for me in, interestingly enough, in uh, really um, learning to believe in the God of abundance. Um, you know, the the first book was God of justice, really. And um, now I feel like really trying to understand who God is as a God of abundance and, and see um, kind of success in a completely different realm. Um, you know, what does success look like for just in general, right? As as human beings, what? How do we measure success um, in our lives and um, with each other? Um, and and how does God measure that, right? Like, what is God's abundance saying to um, you know an empty bank account or or an unpublished book? 
that we've been fighting for two years to get published. What is what does it mean um, to really trust in the God of abundance and to not um, kind of get wrapped up into uh, this what I call the scarcity prosperity framework that is kind of what we live and and breathe every day that says, you know, if you have, then you're valued. And if you don't have, then you're not. Um, and so the more books you publish, the more valued you are. And the less books you publish, the less valued you are, right, in, in the writing world. And, um, you know, with a bank account or whatever, with different privileges in life, like the more privileges you have, the more valued you are. Well, that's not what the God of Abundance says. Um, and so, um, yeah, so working through trying to understand how to how to to write this book in a way that doesn't um that I don't sell myself or I guess um I don't just kind of write what I need to write so that it sells um so I can stay true to myself as as a human my own dignity and, and you know affirming my own dignity in that but also um in a way that uh hopefully eventually the book will get published um and i can share kind of more about what abundance looks like and um you know thinking through the old testament and how i can't remember where it's at in genesis um but where abraham sets a table for god essentially um and and then kind of looking at how that table is set and then looking at how um, the Last Supper, what what Christ does at that table, and just kind of really trying to understand um, that abundance does not mean um, excess. You know, it it that's not what abundance is. Um, it's it's really more of a mindset and more of kind of going back to what we're talking about with flourishing. That abundance means flourishing for all. Um, and sometimes that means me having less so that uh, the person who is sitting next to me can have more. And I think, um, you know, too often we're all just kind of in this whirlwind of get more, get more, get more. And that's that's not actually what God is is for. Our guest is Gina Thomas. You can stay connected by visiting GinaThomas.com. Uh, Gina, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for challenging us to imagine what it would look like to stop forming political tribes of Christianity and involve ourselves in politics solely to advance justice and firm dignity. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, 
I think Whedon mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.